listening to 99 Years, a black exploration of the deliberate creation of the whitest state in the nation. I'm Samuel James. There's this New York Times headline. It's from May of 1977, and it reads, quote, Maine Black Wins Place Names Battle, end quote. That sounds like nonsense gibberish. The Maine in the headline is my home state of Maine. And the black is a man by the name of Gerald Talbot. He was the first black person to be elected to the Maine State House of Representatives, or as the article called him, quote, the lone black in the Maine legislature, end quote. The lone black. What's a place names battle? Well, it turns out that there were places all over the state called Nigger Road, Nigger Hill, Nigger Brook, Nigger Island, and on and on and on. And after years of fighting, in May of 1977, Gerald Talbot was able to pass a bill to change the names of those places. Maine Black wins place names battle. But you gotta wonder why those places had those names. They had them a long time. It's not like Maine was part of the Confederacy. It's the most northern state. It's also the whitest state. And why is that? Well, an answer to all these questions starts 99 years earlier in Galveston, Texas. John Arthur Jack Johnson was born into poverty in Galveston, Texas in 1878, and he was a genius. He was an intellectual and a poet. He was an engineer, holding patents on improvements to wrenches he used to fix the cars he owned because Johnson eventually became rich. And you could tell if not from his cars, extravagant clothes, and his nightclub, then from his smile full of gold teeth. Also, Johnson was incredibly handsome, stood over six feet tall, was known to entertain a seemingly endless number of women. Whatever popular ideals of success or manhood existed in that time, Johnson absolutely transcended them all, except for the one thing. Johnson was a very dark-skinned black man. And that endless line of women, well, they were white. Now your everyday run-of-the-mill white supremacists obviously deeply hated Johnson, but there wasn't really a whole lot they could do about it. Because on top of the genius and the poetry and the nightclub and the money and the good looks, Johnson was also a professional boxer. And in 1908, at 30 years old, he became the heavyweight champion of the world the first black man to ever hold the title. Now, there has never been a time in American history when it was safe to be a black person, but America was growing. The following year, a group of activists, journalists, and lawyers, including W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells, formed an interracial civil rights organization called the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. Their protests and lawsuits and other organizing efforts were bringing black rights further into the white zeitgeist. Then, on July 4th, 1910, Jack Johnson fought Jim Jeffries. A former champ and dubbed the Great White Hope, Jeffries was tasked with returning the heavy white title to the white race. Instead, what happened was, Johnson administered a thorough, savage, bloody, one-sided, 15-round hammering, all while flashing his golden smile far beyond the cheap seats. It was the only loss in Jeffrey's career, and he would later say, quote, I could never have whipped Johnson at my best. I couldn't have hit him. 
No, I couldn't have reached him in a thousand years. End quote. White supremacy had yet again been publicly proven false according to its own brutal standards. 1910 was also the year the Great Migration began, with black folks moving away from the Jim Crow laws of the South, seeking better lives out West, up North, and the Midwest. The relocation of millions of black people throughout the country had the potential to change everything. Many white people were indifferent to this national advancement, and some even welcomed it. But white supremacists saw the Great Migration as a terror. They envisioned thousands of frightening W.E.B. Du Boises coming to integrate their classrooms, and thousands of horrifying Ida B. Wellses coming to integrate their boardrooms, and thousands of big black Jack Johnsons coming to integrate their bedrooms. White supremacists were scared out of their damn minds. Let's put a pin in their lunacy just a minute while I tell you about somebody else. Benjamin Darling was likely born enslaved, but he sure didn't die that way. No one really knows the story of how he got free. Some say it was a grateful master after Benjamin saved him from a shipwreck. Others say his mother smuggled him to freedom. Some say he'd never been enslaved to begin with, but whatever the circumstances, they were such that in 1794, Darling, a dark-skinned black man from the West Indies, bought Horse Island in Maine's Casco Bay. He lived there with his wife, Sarah, and eventually their two children, until his death in 1829. His children would go on to sell Horse Island and move to neighboring Malaga Island. Malaga then became a home to other escaped and freed black folks. Irish, Scottish, and Portuguese people eventually made their homes there as well. There are a lot of photographs of Benjamin and his descendants, and they look almost familiar. Some men are dressed in three-piece suits, others in overalls. Women wore high-collar bodices and long skirts. Some wore aprons. The photos seem to show any typical fishing community of the era, except for the one thing. Integration. Every shade of black folks is in these photos, standing right next to white folks, and none of them look subservient. Honestly, it makes the photos look kind of fake. Stills from a movie about an America that never was. But there it is, right in those photos. But the white supremacists were scared out of their damn minds. By 1911, they understood the Great Migration to be an existential threat, and they really started worrying about those classrooms, boardrooms, and bedrooms. Even in Maine, local papers started talking about Malaga and its, quote, Shiftless population of half-breed blacks and whites, end quote. Then Maine Governor Frederick W. Playstead said, quote, The best plan would be to burn down the shacks with all their filth. Certainly the conditions are not creditable to our state, and we ought not to have such things near our front door, end quote. And so Playstead ordered the exile of the descendants of Benjamin Darling. In December of 1911, eight Malaga residents were forced from their homes and committed to an asylum called the Maine School for the Feeble-Minded, where six of them would eventually die. The following June, the rest of the residents were given 30 days to vacate the island. The 17 graves of their dead were dug up, their remains haphazardly thrown into five boxes and later buried in three holes at the asylum because it was not enough to destroy these families, their homes, and their future. Their past had to be eradicated as well. 
It's important to understand that this is not something Mainers wanted. Again, no, there has never been a time in American history when it has been safe to be a black person, and of course, Malaga residents faced racism. But there was no mass effort or desire to forcibly ban people from their home. In fact, the opposite was true. In an attempt to stop the exile, a community group called Malaga Island Settlement Association had offered to purchase the island. Their offer was turned down. As Americans, we frequently dismiss the horrors of our history as common for the era. But when those horrors are examined, what we often find instead is a history written by the winners and the uncomfortable truth that the good guys don't always win. In fact, sometimes the winners are the absolute worst among us. Playstead was not the only powerful extremist white supremacist to stand in defense of those classrooms, boardrooms, and bedrooms. The most famous of these monstrous frauds was Woodrow Wilson. An extremist white supremacist, Wilson's life was spent in the continuous attempt to destroy the future, present, and past of black Americans. He was so successful in this pursuit that not only did other like-minded extremists emulate Wilson, he was also able to set many false standards for what we now believe was common for the era. For example, in 1913, three years into the Great Migration and just four months into his presidential term, Wilson resegregated the federal government, an attempt to undermine half a century of black American achievement following emancipation. He also oversaw mass firings and demotions of black people in government. On the rare occasion when circumstances prevented their demotion, firing, or segregation, black civil servants were forced to work inside actual cages to separate them from their white co-workers. Before becoming president, Wilson was the governor of New Jersey, where he signed a eugenic sterilization bill into law. Prior to that, as president of Princeton University, Wilson not only blocked black admissions, but he erased records of past black admissions as well. In his five-volume revisionist text, A History of the American People, Wilson expressed deep affection for the Ku Klux Klan and called white people the responsible class. Black people, however, were thieves, beggars, insolent, idlers, and an ignorant and inferior race. Wilson was especially bothered by, quote, the intolerable burden of governments sustained by the votes of ignorant Negroes. End quote. In other words, black participation in democracy meant corrupt governments and oppressed white people. The traditional white supremacist answer to this problem was to stop black people from voting, but Wilson had a more effective solution. He was a Southerner. And in the South at that time, the primary instruments of segregation were white-owned businesses. Across much of the South during the Jim Crow era, it was expected, if not demanded, that white business owners refuse service to black people. And so, to Wilson, if a government was modeled on a business, the ignorant and inferior race would be rightfully and automatically excluded. Wilson's plan would have to start small, at the local level. The elected mayor of a city or town could be turned into a symbolic leader, or the position could just be eliminated. That way there'd be no publicly chosen leader for those black beggars to appeal to, or hold to account, or, God forbid, become themselves. The electoral districts of a city or town could be easily redrawn, eliminating the voting power of these thieves. And if the new white representatives of these gerrymandered districts 
hired a bureaucrat to replace the elected mayor, their government could be safely maintained by and for the responsible class, unburdened by the insolent and made efficient by the exclusion of idlers. Thus, a plan for local white supremacist government was formed. Wilson promoted the plan in national journals, using racist dog whistle claims that it represented anti-corruption, efficiency, and that it was good for business. The loudest dog whistle of all was the title of the job that would replace the mayor, city manager. It sounds innocuous now, but in 1910, the word manager had a different connotation. The idea itself was born out of slavery. And slavers who owned plantations didn't like having blood on their hands. So the position of a manager was created. The manager was the middleman, tasked with brutalizing the enslaved, piling up bodies, dealing with the enslavers' children, those conceived birds that enslaved against the will of their enslaved mothers. Managers also produced financial reports for the plantation owners. These reports were plain and bloodless, filled with language and concepts that, while common today, were uniquely vicious at the time. For example, depreciation of assets specifically referred to the rate at which the savagery of slavery devastated black bodies, eventually rendering them useless to the financial interests of their enslavers. In 1910, a time when more than half a million Civil War veterans were still living, this was still a common understanding of what management meant. A revisionist historian like Wilson, whose father was an enslaver, would have known this intimately. But to many readers of those national journals, the idea of installing a city manager sounded like a plan to enslave an entire city, make the South rise again. So initial attempts to implement the concept faltered. Enter the city of Sumter, South Carolina. If you didn't hear the dog whistles, you may have been confused as to why the people of Sumter would want to change their government. In 1912, the town's 8,105 citizens didn't have many complaints about corruption or inefficiency in their local government, according to most observers. What the town did have, however, was a majority black population and two powerful extremist white supremacists. Dr. S.C. Baker and A.V. Snell were the president and secretary of the Sumter Chamber of Commerce, respectively, and their ideas were as monstrous as Wilson's. Dr. Baker once said of black South Carolinians, quote, Prior to their emancipation, the crime of rape was almost unheard of. I am of the opinion that 95% of all crime in the third state judicial circuit is committed by the Negro, and of this 95%, 90% is committed by the freeborn Negro, end quote. A.V. Snell once said, quote, The Negro here is shiftless and useless, ignorant and unsanitary. The Negro, in my opinion, is absolutely the worst drawback the South has, and no one can doubt that if it were possible to move every colored man from the South today, replacing him with a white man, in ten years the South, with its rich soil and climate, its great possibilities, it would be the richest section of the United States, if not anywhere in the world. End quote. Baker and Snell campaigned to change the structure of Sumter's government. The townspeople voted on the proposal they promoted. And in 1912, what became known as the Sumter Plan was adopted. The town's eight electoral districts were reduced to three. 
the position of elected mayor was eliminated, and the town would henceforth be run by a city manager. These changes were heralded as proof that democracy worked, that citizens could break free of corruption, and finally forge an efficient, business-friendly government, one that was virtuous and honest, unless, that is, you were a member of the town's black majority, or if you looked at literally any of the details. The vote on the plan had been hastily arranged and barely publicized. Only 324 people showed up to cast a ballot, 252 of which voted for the plan. Three representatives of the prior districts became representatives for the new districts. They included the previously elected mayor, a lawyer, who was later forced by the Bar Association to pay restitution to clients he'd defrauded. After a lengthy search for a city manager, one was finally hired, but he quit after less than a year having realized that his duties were not that of a manager so much as those of an assistant to the city council. Another city manager was soon hired to replace the first, but he also quit in under a year, citing the same problems and suggesting that all three city councilors should be jailed. So much for democracy, efficiency, and ending corruption, but at least they got their business in order. White supremacy had secured its hold on Sumter, and it certainly was not stopping there. By the time the town's second city manager quit, the Sumter plan was being promoted and implemented by locally powerful white supremacists in small cities and towns across the country. But it wouldn't be called the Sumter plan for long. It would soon be renamed after the first big city to embrace the plan. In Dayton, Ohio, the locally powerful white supremacist who pushed the plan was John H. Patterson, the robber baron owner of the National Cash Register now known as NCR Corporation, was Dayton's largest employer, and at the time, the supplier of nearly all cash registers sold nationwide. Patterson was a proponent of scientific management, which was essentially just another of the same old white supremacist business practices. This one dressed up with science in the name. If you're wondering how scientific management differs from segregation, apartheid, or similar white supremacist practices allegedly justified by science? A 1905 edition of the Dayton Evening Herald has the answer. Quote, The management of the National Cash Register Company made a change in its janitor force on Friday afternoon by bringing in white men to take the places of colored employees. The managers want every person working for the firm to have a chance for promotion through any of its various departments. Therefore, the company has decided to start good, bright boys in the positions that the colored men have filled so that they may be eligible for promotion in its service. The change in the janitor force will give 80 young men a chance to get into the company's service and show their various qualities. There is absolutely no hard feelings on the part of the company or its president, Patterson, towards colored people, as that gentleman has a number of them employed at his home and has no intention of dismissing them. At the factory, however, there was no chance for these colored men to advance. End quote. The Dayton Journal reported on how the mass firing was received, quote, on Friday evening, President Patterson asked Harry A. Pollard, who has been for 16 years a faithful colored employee at the Officers Club, and among those dismissed at the NCR, to come to his residence. 
After speaking about the situation at the NCR, Mr. Patterson gave him five twenty and two ten-dollar gold coins. He requested Mr. Pollard to deliver the donations to the several colored churches. This action was bitterly denounced in every colored pulpit Sunday morning. Reverend W.O. Harper, pastor of the Zion Baptist Church, said, The conscience of the colored churches cannot be covered by a $20 gold piece. If we die, we die men. We will not accept his $20 as hush money. End quote. In 1913, Patterson's hubris and corruption led to antitrust convictions of not only his business, but also of Patterson himself. The mogul was actually facing a year in prison. But just when it seemed his comeuppance was on its way, that same year, Dayton was hit with a devastating flood. Patterson used his enormous resources to support rescue efforts, and he made sure members of the national press covering the disaster knew he was doing it. One reporter's account, quote, Newspaper reporters shot off by their city editors without time to get as much as a toothbrush or a collar found themselves sleeping in brand new brass bedsteads under down quilts and rattling around in tiled bathrooms where everything was supplied for them, even if they had time to use them, with buffers to polish their fingernails. When their clothing gave out, they were given new ones clean linens, overalls, pajamas, anything they needed. Hard-working clerks and attendants at once acquired all the special knowledge of valets with the gracious manners of southern gentlemen. Men smeared with mud were asked as they went to bed to send their clothes to be pressed. And there were large signs posted in the lower corridor stating that clothes, pressers, and barbers worked all night and accepted neither pay nor tips. End quote. Patterson also gave reporters as much liquor as they could drink, and by no coincidence, newspaper headlines began appearing nationwide, deifying Patterson as the savior of Dayton. His conviction was soon overturned, and Patterson directed his efforts towards implementation of the city manager system of government. Quote, he turned the full sales and advertising force of the NCR into the fight and sold the plan to the people the way the cash registers had been sold, end quote. A business reporter wrote a decade later. As a result, in 1914, the Sumter Plan became the Dayton Plan. Quote, Patterson was one of the first business leaders to try to apply scientific management to local government, testing out his ideas in rebuilding the city after a disastrous flood ruined downtown Dayton. End quote. That's Dr. Samuel R. Staley, professor at the University of Florida. How'd the rebuilding go? Well, with this new white supremacist government plan in effect, Dayton rebuilt itself into a segregated city. White-only neighborhoods were established, white business owners banned black customers, and Ku Klux Klan membership grew until Dayton became one of the most Klan-populated cities in the country. This was the pattern across the United States. In town after town, city after city, locally powerful extremist white supremacists successfully promoted this self-serving form of government, claiming it would operate uncorrupted, efficiently, like a business. Of course, supporters weren't the only ones hearing these dog whistles. In cities with well-established black communities like Tampa, Florida, Activists fought the implementation of unelected city managers, but they had little success. 
By 1920, the Dayton Plan was in effect in 157 different cities and towns. And in 1923, it came to Portland, Maine. As in Sumter, Dayton, and elsewhere, the plan was pushed by the local Chamber of Commerce and extremist white supremacists. Frank Eugene Farnsworth died on March 14, 1926. His Boston Globe obituary reads, quote, Farnsworth's life was a colorful one. Born in eastern Maine, he moved as a boy to St. Stephen, New Brunswick, where he became a barber. He then studied hypnotism and for a time traveled through New England, giving exhibitions in the leading cities, end quote. The obituary mentions his photography and his work for the Salvation Army. The obituary also calls him a genius. There is a surprising amount written about Frank Eugene Farnsworth, and most of it calls him a genius. But he wasn't. Not even close. His short-lived career as a stage hypnotist ended when he accidentally killed his assistant, a poorly planned magic trick resulting in a boulder crushing the assistant's skull in front of a live audience. No, Frank Eugene Farnsworth was very far from genius, but he was exceptional. He was exceptionally petty. He was exceptionally cruel. And he was exceptionally successful. In the early 1920s, as lead organizer of the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maine, Farnsworth helped drive membership from 20,000 to more than 150,000, nearly 20% of the state's population. This enormous and despicable achievement is why he is remembered as a genius, but the full context always gets left out. In an environment where hate speech is so common as to be used on official maps, where a recent governor had freely committed an ethnic cleansing in his own state, boosting Klan membership, well, it wouldn't exactly take a genius. It's difficult for us to take on questions of culture and structure. Those questions could lead to other questions about our own individual statuses and responsibilities. Those questions can get uncomfortable. And so it's much easier to tell ourselves that we were all once collectively on the side of good until we fell victim to one man's singular, overwhelming genius. Telling people what they want to hear requires very little intelligence, even less effort and absolutely no morality, but it can be very motivating. And that's why on September 10th, 1923, it was very easy for Farnsworth to get more than 7,000 Klansmen to flood the streets of Portland, Maine. They were there in support of an outrageous referendum meant to dissolve Portland's representative democracy and replace it with a government designed and proven to subjugate black people and guarantee white supremacy. Eventually, Farnsworth would be kicked out of the Klan. It was discovered that four out of every $10 in KKK membership fees had been going directly into his pocket. He tried to start his own clan-like organization, which failed almost immediately. Farnsworth was only 58 years old when he died in disgrace. But his legacy would live on. Not only would he be remembered for having lived a colorful life as a genius, but the 1923 referendum passed 
Portland's century-old representative democracy was dissolved, replaced with a government designed and proven to subjugate black people and guarantee white supremacy. And in Portland, that structure still largely remains today, and the outcomes have been predictably brutal. Next time on 99 Years. The first black person that we know by name to been in what is now the state of Maine was here in 1608. That's 12 years before the pilgrims arrived at Plymouth Rock. 99 Years was co-produced by Flo Edwards and made with generous support from Maine Initiatives, the FUBU Fund, Maine Humanities Council, and with fiscal sponsorship through Indigo Arts Alliance.